Let's now open the Word of God that he would teach us this morning. Our first scripture reading comes from Daniel chapter 1. Daniel 1 will read that chapter. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, understanding learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. <clears throat> the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who has assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. So far from the book of Daniel, then we'll turn to the New Testament, to the letter to the Romans. Romans chapter 13. Romans 13, verse 1. 
Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. We're continuing this morning in our series in Ecclesiastes, and we find ourselves this morning in Ecclesiastes chapter 8. Ecclesiastes 8, the verses of our text are verses 2 through 13. Ecclesiastes 8, verse 2. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow, because he does not fear before God. 
So far, the reading of the text. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, in uh, past weeks as we've been working through Ecclesiastes, uh, we've been learning a lot about the fear of God, and especially what the fear of God looks like in practice, or how it impacts our life in practical ways. Uh, The fear of God changes our perspective. The, The fear of God helps us to look upon the world with also a sense of perspective. Especially in chapter 7, we, we talked about how the fear of God changes our perspective on our fellow man. Uh, when God is big, as the saying goes, people become small. The more highly we esteem God's judgments and decrees, the more lowly we will esteem man's opinions and man's decrees. And we saw this, for example, in chapter 7 in the realm of uh, religion. Uh, in, in verses 16 to 18, there's a kind of religious person who only destroys himself by his own religiosity, and most of his religion is not actually from God, but from man. This man's problem is not that he thinks too highly of God, but that he thinks too highly of the opinions and decrees of man. He thinks too highly of himself, and he thinks not nearly highly enough of God. Indeed, had he thought more highly of God, he might have abandoned a silly pursuit of outward religion uh, and ceased to be enslaved by the fear of man. Well, so too, uh, as we navigate the pressures of society and of our culture, what man regards as good or what man regards as noble might not actually be good or noble. What man regards as wise might might in fact be foolish. What man regards as loving towards your neighbor may in fact be harmful to our neighbor. And here too, the principle remains, only the fear of God can lead us on a straight path. The fear of man makes us want to be seen by others. The fear of man makes us want to be regarded as virtuous. The fear of God teaches us to be virtuous, to do what is good even if it is regarded as evil by our fellow man. In other words, the fear of man leads to virtue signaling. The fear of God leads to virtuous living. There it is, the principle, when God is big, people become small. But now if we've taken that lesson to heart, in chapter 8, the preacher now addresses the question, how then shall we live together with our fellow man? It's good if we've learned to draw our ethics, our knowledge of what is good and right, to draw that from God and not from man. That is where we must begin. But the question still remains, how will we now live together with our fellow man? And that's a question that requires wisdom to answer. So wisdom is not only discerning what is true and good and beautiful in the eyes of God, but it is also knowing how to pursue that while living in a broken, fallen, crooked world. It is, in other words, aiming for the ideal while making provision for the real. Wise living, then, is is never so simple as I only care about what God thinks and I don't care about what man thinks. No. For, For one thing, humility would teach us that we ought to listen to others. Sometimes others are right. Sometimes it's good to learn from others. Uh, But also, if we live in this world, we recognize God has placed us here in a community, 
And living in a community means that our decisions affect the lives of others and their decisions affect our lives. We have to work together in a broken and fallen world. Uh, the challenge, uh, th- this challenge then of, of living together with our fellow man becomes particularly uh, difficult when we start to think of how do we live under human authorities. Like it or not, we live under human authorities and their decisions impact our lives. Uh, we don't get to live as islands uh, in isolation from the world. And that means this requires wisdom. We don't get to say that just because the, the, the wisdom of man is not that wise or the righteousness of man not that righteous, both of which uh, Ecclesiastes has taught us are certainly true, uh, we don't get to say that therefore we don't have to listen to our fellow man. No, in this world, living wisely means uh, we aim for what God's will is and we make provision uh, for what we must deal with here uh, in this world. That's what this text then in verses 2 to 13 is all about. The preacher has uh, several points to teach us about walking wisely before the king, both the king, uh, and note that uh, when he speaks of the king, uh, he wants us to think on two levels here. There's the king who is on earth before whom we must walk wisely, and there is the king who is in heaven uh, before whom also we must walk wisely. In the first place, the preacher then instructs us to honor authority as given by God. That's verse 2. I say, he says, keep the, command, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Now don't get too hung up here on, on this phrasing, God's oath to him. Uh, it, it's not really clear what the Hebrew actually means there. It, if you look at different translations, you will find anything uh, from uh, because of your oath to God or because of his oath, that's the king's oath to God, or because of God's oath to him. Any one of those could be valid uh, translations. Whatever is meant by the phrase, the the point is clear. There's a connection between God's authority and the king's authority. Uh, The king is there because God has put him there. Uh, This is something Scripture teaches us not only here, but in many other places in in Scripture, uh, Old and New Testament. It's something we want to be very public in affirming. Uh, The authorities are set in place by God. Uh, They are to be honored and obeyed as far as possible uh, because even if we don't agree with them, uh, even though they may be wicked, yet there is a legitimacy to their rule as appointed by God. We think here, uh, to give examples, we think here of David's great reverence for King Saul. Saul who was uh, hunting him down to kill him, who was persecuting him, who uh, burned cities to the ground for defending David, and yet David refused to kill Saul. Even when he was given the opportunity, uh, his respect for the fact that Saul was anointed by God uh, overcame his desire for revenge. In the New Testament, too, uh, we're called to honor authorities as set in place by God. This is also our witness, then, against them when they do wrong. That we say, not only do we honor you because you are set in place by God, but you, too, must give an account to God. uh, And and they will. So the preacher uh, then goes on to say in in verse 3, also be hasty, or, or be not hasty to go from his presence. Be not hasty to go from the king's presence. Uh, What's the image there? It is, if someone's in a hurry to get out of the king's courtroom, 
it's usually a bad sign uh, from the king's perspective. Uh, It's a pretty good indicator that that person's probably not working with the king's best interests in mind. Be not hasty to go from his presence. If, If you're running from him, it's probably because you're living in a way that's not pleasing to him. What's the opposite of that then? The opposite of that is work with a cooperative spirit towards the king. Uh, Your attitude towards the king should make you want to be in his presence. Rejoice at the opportunity, if God gives it, to be able to address the king and speak to him. Who knows whether God might bless your efforts? Who knows whether the king might actually listen to you? And so for us as Christians, too, we want to make sure that, uh, that we have our nation's best interests in, in mind. Uh, we want to make sure we have our government's best interests in mind, even when we disagree strongly. Uh, the principle is be not overcome with anger, but overcome evil with good. And so the best way for us as Christians then to begin uh, is by bringing our government before the king of kings bringing them before him in prayer. We overcome anger by spending time in prayer, praying for for their welfare, and praying continually and continually until all thoughts of anger are replaced with thoughts of mercy. It's with that spirit that we can be open and transparent also then before them to say, this is what we're doing, uh, and we want this to be pleasing to you. It's with that uh, spirit that we can also then express our concerns, that we can plead for understanding and perhaps by God's mercy receive a listening ear. Likewise then in in, in verse 3, the preacher urges us uh, to avoid participating in uh, in revolutions and rebellions. Uh, He says, do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? He's speaking here of, of disobedience, and we should notice that, that he calls it an evil thing, an evil cause. Rebellion uh, in Scripture is almost always seen as evil, uh, even when it's rebellion against an evil king. Uh, because it's rebellion not just against the king, but against God who put the king there in authority. Uh, so Proverbs uh, 24, verse 21 My son, fear the Lord and the king, and do not join with those who do otherwise, for disaster will arise suddenly from them, and who knows the ruin that will come from them both. Now, to be sure, there are complexities to this, aren't there? We've talked about this a lot, I think, in the last months, how how complex the reality of that can be. Just because someone is is in power does not automatically mean they bear lawful authority. Uh, to cite uh, uh, an obvious example, uh, we might think of the, the Dutch underground resistance against the uh, invading uh, Nazi armies. That was illegitimate rule. And, and maybe that's an obvious example, but it wasn't an obvious example at the time. There were preachers from the pulpits in those days saying, the Bible says we must submit to authority, and this is the new authority uh, to which we must submit. I was thankful that uh, we can be thankful that the fear of God overcame such folly, uh, and, and it was the fear of God that led to uh, the resistance against that illegitimate rule. This is something the reformers had to wrestle with as well as the authorities were hunting the church down. Uh, on the one hand, they wanted to maintain their, their allegiance to the lawful authorities, uh, but on the other hand, they were also victims of, of gross overreaches and abuses of authority. It's a hard thing to wrestle with. 
Uh, and at least one of the principles uh, that the reformers laid down, and, and how do you navigate uh, this? One of the principles that the, author- uh, the reformers laid down is that if there is resistance to the king, if there is uh, disobedience to the king's laws, it ought to come from the magistrates, the civil magistrates themselves, uh, because they share in that authority from God and that calling to uphold what is good and right. Uh, rebellion should not come uh, from from an average citizen. They should come from lawful authorities. Uh, one of the examples they cited was the overthrow of the queen uh, Athaliah in Second uh, uh, Kings 11 uh, by the high priest Jehoiada together with the, the leaders of the army. And do we suppose that uh, Jehoiada uh, and, and his company were doing evil uh, because they overthrew the queen? No, in fact, they were honoring the, the authority of the throne of David. They were acting from a lawful place, ordained by God uh, to do God's will. In our own day, we might think of sheriffs or mayors who, who, who have been saying, we will not enforce unlawful or unconstitutional orders. Uh, those who say, we've made a vow to uphold the Constitution, and we will keep that vow. It's a lawful, a godly thing to do. This also means for us as citizens uh, here in, in our country, if we are honoring the law, means we're holding the authorities accountable to the law, including the Constitution and the Charter of Rights. It's an expression of submission to the law uh, and reverence for authority that we say we want to see the law followed and upheld. After all, the Charter of Rights, the Constitution, they are the law of the land. Failure to submit to them, whether by us or by the authorities, is in fact lawlessness. Uh, it's a great blessing and one that really flows from the Christian faith that we live in such a country uh, where there are uh, such freedoms that we have access to uh, even challenge the authorities when given the opportunity. So that said, there there are certainly complexities here in in what does it mean to submit to lawful authority. But the principle is you want to honor the authority that's in place by God. the preacher is teaching us here, do not participate in an evil cause. You'll recognize an evil cause when you see it. A righteous cause will be carried out in a righteous way and with a righteous heart. A righteous cause is not done out of fear. It's not done out of anger. It's not done out of pride. That's what James 1 verse 20 says, that the anger of man will never accomplish the righteousness of God. Rebellion comes as easy to one man as cowardice does to the other, but neither are the will of God for Christians. What the preacher then is calling us to is integrity combined with courage, uprightness combined with love, uh, or the fear of God combined with respect and mercy towards our fellow man. These are the, the qualities that have a lasting reward. So the preacher then, he warns us against rebellion, uh, not least, you'll notice, because the word of the king is supreme. He will do what he wishes, and who will call him to account? Uh, In our government, we can be thankful to have systems in place, checks and balances, uh, so to speak, to, to help hold power to account. But at the end of the day, no system is incorruptible. Uh, It's simply a reality of life in this crooked world that you have to deal sometimes with authorities who get their way if that way, even if that way is unrighteous. 
And the preacher urges us, uh, recognize this as a fact of life, as part of reality in this crooked world. And rebellion and conspiracy are not the answer here. Instead, then, the preacher urges us to comply with patience, to wait on the right time and opportunity. That's verse 5. Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble or man's misery lies heavy upon him. The wise heart will know the right time and the proper way. Now the preacher here, he's obviously not denying that injustice happens. He says man's trouble lies heavy upon him. Uh, People do experience injustice under cruel uh, and ungodly governments. But he insists there is still a right time and a right way for everything. And he urges the wise, wait on God's timing. You will know when the time is right. Do not act impulsively. Do not act out of anger or emotion, but ponder the way that is just. This is great wisdom, isn't it? Uh, And has application also in our own time. Not just to our our civil government, in fact, but to every authority uh, that that we dwell under. Even within the church, uh, as disagreements often arise, there is wisdom to be learned here. Be patient. The wise will wait, uh, and they will know the proper time and the just way. Be open and transparent, but be cautious and careful. Find a way to submit. Uh, and, and also pray uh, for those who are in authority over you, your elders and deacons, and then also police officers and, and civil uh, magistrates. That's what the Apostle Peter taught us as well, right? In the letter of Peter, uh, when you submit, uh, you, you will find a right way. You will find the right time. And by submitting, you give yourself a voice. You increase the likelihood that your concerns will actually be heard. Well, so too then with the governing authorities, patience is a virtue. Wait for it, and you will know the right time and the right way. Uh, Find a way to submit. Look for ways to submit, and and never stop bringing your government before God in prayer. It's when you do that, and you can go forward with a a pure heart, with a clean conscience, saying, I I have nothing to hide, nothing to hide from God, nothing to hide uh, from, from the civil magistrates. Uh, So then trusting God, the fear of God, recognizing that his hand rules over our our lives, helps us to live at peace in a world where where much evil, much injustice, and much folly uh, prevails, where man's trouble lies heavy upon him. Uh, The fear of God keeps us from the foolish temptation to think that, I must fix everything, uh, that, that this world is in my hands. And it teaches us, no, uh, be patient because the world is in God's hands. The fear of God keeps us from participating in evil causes, and it shows us the right time and way. The third thing that the, the preacher teaches us is to maintain perspective, uh, even in a fallen, crooked world. It's going right back to this, this big idea of the fear of God gives us perspective. Although the king may be a powerful man in this world for a season, he is still only a man. The preacher says, verse 8, No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. As powerful as the king may be, he is not God. Uh, He has no power to retain the spirit, uh, and he has no power over the day of his own death. 
Even the most powerful men on earth have a very limited time uh, during which they rule, uh, and there's nothing they can do to extend that time. Any king or any government who fills their heads with the idea that they can aspire to the very throne of God, that they can play God, uh, that, that king is deeply deluded. The story is told of the Christian king, uh, Canute. Uh, he ruled over Denmark and Norway and England uh, from the years 1016 to 1016 to, to 1035. Uh, and at one point, uh, this Christian king, he, uh, he ruled over a largely pagan nation uh, still, or a pagan kingdom. Uh, and and he, at one point, he took his throne uh, and he set his throne right on the beach. Uh, on the on on low tide, uh, and he sat there on his throne until the water crept up to his throne and then crept higher up to his waist and then up to his shoulder and his neck. Uh, and he did this to demonstrate to his people who thought that the king is God to demonstrate, no, the king is still just a man. He cannot stop the rising tide. That belongs to God alone. Well, that's a powerful lesson we need to uh, bear in mind as well. You know, in, in this day, for all the talk of, of beating the virus, uh, we have not beaten it. We've only slowed its spread, which may turn out to be to our harm in the long run. It's one thing to protect the vulnerable. It's one thing to practice precaution. It's another to turn the world upside down, to beat what man cannot uh, stop. And, and we consider the cost. Uh, what has been the cost uh, of all this attempt to play God? The UN estimates as many as 500 million this year will be brought into, into extreme poverty uh, as a result of our attempts to beat the virus. And every year, every year the lockdowns continue. Uh, that number grows higher. Well, it takes us back then to the fear of God that gives us perspective, that frees us from, from a servile submission to the fear and, opi- and opinions and wisdom of man. Let not the wisdom of man, and even less the righteousness of man, uh, men who cast off the law of God, let not that define for you what it means to love your neighbor and to do good. Do humble yourself before the law of God. Submit your life and your attitudes to the law and rule of God. So the fear of God then teaches us limits, teaches us that all of us are but men. And that same truth is also our comfort then, when we do for seasons, bear up under unjust rule. Uh, We are reminded no evil ruler, no unjust government will last forever. As powerful as as the ruler seems in his time, he or she is still human and has no power to retain the spirit uh, or, or, or uh, or to delay the day of death. When their time comes, they must stand before God. Moreover, the preacher says, just like there's no discharge from war, once you're signed up, you can't get out of war, uh, so it is with wickedness. Uh, It does not deliver those who are enlisted, uh, those who have given themselves over to it. There are some wicked rulers that have just given themselves over to wickedness, and there are times when all the righteous can do is bear up under it and wait for it to pass, but it will pass. There's a warning to us here, isn't there, as well? Uh, See to it that you are not among those who are given over to wickedness. Uh, Take heed to your own heart. Uh, Sin does not let go of of people once it has seized their hearts. So even as you bear up under the oppressions of others, uh, it, it is all the more urgent to watch your own heart, that you don't allow your own heart and your own spirit to be given over to anger and to wickedness. 
The preacher then takes us forward in verse 10 and following uh, to, uh, to, to the day that these kings die. He says, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised. And you'll notice a footnote that says the word might be forgotten. There's a, a difference in the Hebrew. Uh, they were praised or forgotten in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. I think the word forgotten is, in fact, the better uh, translation. Uh, most Hebrew manuscripts have the word forgotten. And so if you read that, uh, they, were, uh, they used to go in and out of the holy place, and they were forgotten in the city where they had done such things. Uh, it, keeps, it gives us perspective. Uh, the wicked may prevail, they may reign, and they may have uh, the attention uh, of, of man during that season as they go into the temple uh, like religious people, uh, but it, it will end. And when it ends, uh, they will be very quickly forgotten. All the great power of the greatest rulers on earth, uh, those, those who everyone feared uh, and honored, uh, they are soon forgotten. And all that's left at the end of it is some humble landscaper you know, cleaning the grass, cutting the grass over, over their tomb. Uh, life in the city moves on. Nobody fears or even remembers that king that was once so fearful. We are not gods. We are but men. So the fear of God gives us perspective. Uh, we honor authorities, not because they are so great, but because God who rules over them is so great. Uh, we do not fear them with a servile fear as the world does. We know better how weak and how fragile and how foolish uh, they can be. And then finally, the preacher brings our attention to the final judgment, to remember the judgment of the king of kings. And he laments the fact that that judgment doesn't come sooner. He says, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Now, some take this, uh, uh, this verse as a complaint about, uh, about the delay of, of, uh, of capital punishment, uh, and, and there's certainly some truth to that. The fact that it takes 20 years uh, in countries that even have capital punishment, that it takes that long uh, only encourages crime. It's a fitting commentary for the lawlessness that we see today sweeping over our, our nation. When crime isn't punished, uh, it continues to grow. But I think the preacher here, he's not just looking at, at particular people uh, who we might call criminals. Uh, he's not just looking at them. He's looking at the children of man, isn't he? That's what he says. Uh, the human race, the children of man, and their disposition before God. Because the sentence against sin does not come quickly, human beings give themselves over to evil. We store up wrath for ourselves for the day of judgment. And, and the preacher uh, looks at this, and, and, and though that delay exists, though, though sin is not punished immediately, the preacher still says, I know that this is folly. He says, even if a sinner commits evil a hundred times and by so doing prolongs his life, yet I know that it will still be better with those who fear God. And this is the perspective that the preacher uh, will never back down from. In all of this uh, book of Ecclesiastes, though he, he questions many things, he uh, challenges uh, many assumptions, he never backs down from this conviction uh, that, uh, that the fear of God uh, is the right way. Uh, this book is, is largely written from a perspective under the sun. Uh, and so he deals with, with great mysteries and, and with the, the crookedness of, of this world. But the preacher has not forgotten and will not forget the ultimate judgment of God. Even though we don't know what that will look like, 
Uh, and in the meantime, the wicked might get away with a hundred sins, uh, and they may live longer, happier, healthier lives as a result, yet the conviction of faith remains firm. Uh, it will not work out for good in the end to live a wicked life. Fear God, and it will be better for you in the end. Uh, Far better, uh, if it may be God's will, far better to have less on this earth but be right with God than to have everything on this earth and lose it all anyways on the day we die and then have to stand before the God to whom we must give account. That's not worth it. And, And it's this fear of God, this remembrance of God's final judgment that gives us a steadiness in the face of unjust rulers. Their time will come sooner uh, than later, and it will not be worth it uh, to have done unjustly on this earth. The Mongolian king, Genghis Khan, uh, he once said, the greatest joy is to conquer one's enemies, to pursue them, to seize their property, to see their family in tears, to ride their horses, and to possess their daughters and wives. Well, where is Genghis Khan now? Where does he stand now? Is it worth it now? And will it be worth it a thousand, a billion years from now and for the rest of eternity where Genghis Khan must live with the, the, the consequences of his actions here on earth? Once again, the fear of God brings clarity and perspective. Now, it's interesting, the preacher adds a qualification to this, doesn't, it? doesn't he? Uh, he? He says, it will be well with those who fear God, who fear before him. You say, that's redundant. Didn't he already say, who fear God? What's the point of adding who fear before him? Well, he he adds this because he's talking here about wicked rulers who used to go in and out of the temple. Those who had a great outward show of religion. Uh, By all appearances, were highly religious kings, as the kings often did, as politicians today are often uh, highly uh, religious people uh, as well. well. The preacher has no use for that. Uh, outward shows of religion, as the Lord Jesus taught us as well in the Sermon on Mount, uh, on, in Matthew 6, outward shows of religion mean nothing at all. God's not impressed with the size of our offerings or the length of our prayers or our outward show of worship uh, for, for the approval of man. God's not impressed with those who fear him before others, but who do not fear him before him in the privacy of their hearts and in the privacy of their lives. It's utter vanity. It's chasing after the wind. It's the fear of man, which does not help us when we leave this life and must stand before God. God has regard for true faith, for those who fear before him. And so it is then with regard to this final day of judgment. Uh, uh, We honor the authorities for God's sake because we know that we and they must stand before him. And this is where we, we, we then uh, we need to set the wisdom here that the, the preacher is giving us in Ecclesiastes to set this against the backdrop of the gospel. When God is big, people are small. And then suddenly, when, when God is big and people are small, the final judgment starts to matter a whole lot more than it did when people were big and God was small. Uh, suddenly, our own condition as sinners before God matters a whole lot more than what society thinks of us as good or evil people. Uh, suddenly, uh, the, the, all the old comforting thoughts that we told ourselves, you know, we're pretty good people, and uh, other people think that we're pretty good people, 
those, those comforting thoughts start to mean very little. And, and suddenly what matters to us more than anything else is what does God think of our lives and our conduct? And this is exactly what the preacher wants us to see. Stop worrying about the judgments and opinions of man and get right with God. And the only way to getting right with God is, by, is through the blood of Christ poured out on the cross whom God gave us so that we could be right with him. Do not put this off, as most people do in this world, believing that because the judgment is delayed, uh, sin uh, is actually rewarding. Don't believe that. The judgment is coming. Confess your sins to God. Call upon the name of Christ while it is still today and get right with God. Brother or sister, if you're cherishing sin against God that you've not let go, today is the day to get right with God, to confess your sin and to turn from it. Uh, Forget about your reputation. Forget about the opinions of man. Forget about the approval of others. It doesn't matter when you're standing before God. One way or another, you're going to spend the rest of eternity keenly aware of how little the opinions of man mattered. One thing matters, and it matters forever, and that is the judgment of God. To those then who have confessed what there is uh, to confess uh, before God, who who know that they're living before God with a clean conscience, uh, for them the promises of God are incredibly rich and sweet. He's given us Christ. He's given us a place at His table. He's given us His presence forever, uh, despite all of our sins, because of the blood of Christ poured out for us. When you hold on to that, when you see that as the most important and most precious truth of your life, then all of the difficult, challenging, complex, trying uh, situations we find ourselves here, uh, we find ourselves in here on earth, uh, all the complexities of this world, they find their proper place held in perspective against that most important truth. Amen.